The scripture text for this evening's message is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. These are the words of God. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Before I pray and ask for God's help, I want to show you from this text why I pray before I preach every week. For the fourth time, In this gospel, John shows us the spiritual blindness with which Jesus has to deal over and over again in us. Either because we are not born again and are spiritually dead and therefore totally unperceiving of any spiritual reality at all, or because we are believing and have grown dull of seeing and hearing through worldliness. Oh, how we all know what that means. Look what he does four times, this writer. Number one, chapter two, verse 19. Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it in three days? In other words, they are spiritually blind to his meaning. He means, I'm the temple. You killed me? In three days I rise from the dead? I'm the place from now on where people meet God. That temple's coming down in 40 years. 
And they didn't have any clue what he was talking about. They were spiritually unable to see what he was talking about. Number two, chapter three, verse three. He says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is spiritually blind to what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't have a clue what he means. Jesus is talking about, I'm not talking about entering into your mother's womb. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit blows where he wills and he blows on people and they are brought alive from the dead. They are given spirits that can perceive spiritual reality in the cross and in me and you don't have it yet. Number three, chapter four, verse 10 says to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water to which the woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. She doesn't have a clue. She is spiritually blind. He's talking about, I am life. I am the living water. Come to me. Receive me. If you receive me, you drink life into yourself and you won't ever die. And she says, but you don't have a bucket. This is us. One, two, three. Here's number four in our text. Chapter four, verse 31. The disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they say to each other, um, has anyone brought him something to eat? You get the message here? One, two, three, four. I will raise this temple in three days. But it took 46 years. You must be born again. Oh, but the womb is too small to get into. I will give you living water. You don't have a bucket. I have food to eat you do not know. Who gave him a sandwich? So, it's just crystal clear what's going on here. We're stupid. We are so dense. The world is so much with us. Blogs and websites and Twitter and and computers and games and videos and television who can have any spiritual sight at all some of you are not born again and you can't see anything this is so boring to you and so uninteresting you just want out of here others of you have been saved you are born again. The Holy Spirit is in you. And you're grieving Him because you can't see anything interesting in the Bible anymore. It is so boring, it's just gutting it out duty to put in five minutes in the morning because nothing is alive anymore, it feels like. And you wonder, am I even saved? That's a good question to ask. So, I pray before I preach... Because the wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it? You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who's born in the Spirit. In other words, we need Christians 
and non-Christians need the mighty, sovereign, life-giving, eye-opening, heart-awakening work of the Holy Spirit. And I can't make it happen. Only God can. Right now. Right now. So I'm not, this is not a tradition to me. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am desperate. I want a living church. I am a pastor. I want the sheep to live. I don't want them to say, who gave him a sandwich? You don't have a bucket. It took 46 years to build this temple. The womb is too small. I don't want natural responses. I want spiritual responses. And so I'm pleading with you, Holy Spirit, to come. And open the eyes of the blind. Have mercy upon us in our worldliness, deadness, disinterest, numbness, unseeing, unresponsive hearts. Breathe spiritual life into our souls. Open the eyes of our hearts. Shed divine spiritual light in our minds. Awaken our spirit-given ability to see and taste and know and understand and treasure the glory of Christ. This is supernatural work. I am not. God. So come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way John tells the rest of the story of the woman at the well is is really interesting. He deals with what happens to this woman and the townspeople of Sychar in two parts. Part of the beginning, part of the end with something in the the middle, as Joe read to us. Uh, In the middle, between the, the dealing with the woman in the town people here and the woman in the town people here, there's this meanwhile, something was happening while, while she left. And that's huge. That, that is Jesus talking. And what is revealed in that section is all about what is deeply, profoundly happening in, in these two sections. What's really happening when she's talking and what's really happening when they're coming and, and believing and what is all that? That's the way this text is set up. Got these brackets of, of the woman and the townspeople here and the woman and the townspeople here with Jesus talking here, shedding light on what's going on profoundly there. So let's, let's take the brackets first. Start with verse 27 to 30. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar And went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man that told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That is the Messiah. He had just said to her, I am. Verse 26, I am the Christ. They went out of the town and were coming to him. So you expect the next verse to say, Okay, what happened when they came? And then we get this, Meanwhile... So she leaves her water jar, she goes to the town, she tells the people. I mean, the impression you get from the rest of this text is, this whole town's coming out. This is amazing. This is a woman who had five husbands and is living with her boyfriend and and is showing up at noon when no women come to get water in the heat of the day because she doesn't like to be seen. And she's broadcasting to everybody. He told me everything. Something's going on here, right? Something pretty big in her life is going on. Now, 
even though it's not the main point of the text, John thought it was important enough in verse 27 to say this. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Didn't have to say that, did he? Could have passed right over that like normal as could be. And he, he paused and took note. He drew our attention to their amazement that he, Jesus, our Lord, was talking to a woman. Now, remember in verse 31, they called Jesus rabbi. So Jesus, in their mind, is like the people they know, namely rabbis. Rabbis, in particular, men in general, didn't talk to women in public, first century, especially Judaism. Many of them might have done this out of seemliness, cultural appropriateness. Many did it out of misogyny. You know that word? Deep distrust, disrespect, dislike of women. In its worst form, we saw it this week, right? George Sodini killed three women in an L.A. fitness gym in Pittsburgh, just outside Pittsburgh. This is what he wrote in his journal. He wounded ten, killed three. Just opened fire on a, on a women's exercise class. His diary. No girlfriend since 1984. Who knows why? I'm not ugly or too weird. No sex since July 1990 either. I was 29. Over 18 years ago. I actually look good. I dress good. I'm clean shaven. Bathe. Touch of cologne. Yet 30 million women rejected me over an 18 or 25 year period. And he hated women. And he killed indiscriminately. Three of them, and I don't know how seriously the other 10 are hurt. His disgust falls across all women. And he kills. Now, I am not saying, please don't go out of here saying, that's the way John views first century people or Jews or rabbis. However, uh, he was an extreme pathological case of something real in all cultures. Women were not taught the Torah in Judaism, and they were not treated in general with respect, tenderness, appreciation. Jesus treated women differently. And John wants to draw your attention to that. Jesus treated women differently. His mother, these are just illustrations that you could go read about. His mother, Mary Magdalene, the woman bent over for 18 years, the Syrophoenician woman, Mary and Martha, the widow with two coins, and others. And the main point that flows out of all of his interaction with women is God created man, male and female. In his own image, he created them of equal value and equal dignity with differing, complementary, honorable roles. And he put in motion in his coming and in his cross and in his speech and in his behavior, he put in motion a reversal of the fall. 
And what the fall did, this horrific corruption that has come into female hearts and male hearts. We are male and female, fallen and corrupt and sinful. And the form it takes since the fall is that women are inclined by sin to be either helplessly coquettish or brashly domineering. And men are inclined by the fall to be either timidly passive or harsh and demanding. Sin could distort in either direction, male or female. And what Jesus did was set in motion a, a healing of those sins, whether it's on the passivity side or the ugly, aggressive side of male or female. Wherever Christianity has become deeply rooted in a culture, treatment of women has improved manifestly. I don't know if you saw the horrific film, The Stoning of Soraya M. For your own sake, I hope you didn't, because it is the worst thing I have ever seen in my life. And uh, to my dismay, I took my wife to see it, because they were showing it to pastors. And it's not sexy, it's just the most violent, horrible thing I've ever seen, worse than the passion of the Christ, which I am glad I watched. Um, what that movie is intended to do and did is give us a glimpse of the dismal plight of millions of women today hidden away in cultures around the world where Jesus is not known or trusted or followed. It is a horrific, dismal plight. The stoning of Saraya M. Wherever his gospel has gone, wherever his word has gone and taken root and begun to hold sway, men treat women with respect. They take humble, courageous initiative to protect women. They create stable, loving families as leaders who love and are like Jesus in which covenant faithfulness of husband and wife displays to the world the mystery of Christ and his church. I read C.S. Lewis two weeks ago who said, the ideal marriage is one that's most like a crucifixion, meaning the husband dies for her. That is unspeakably revolutionary in every culture, including ours. That's the way Jesus meant it to be. It's not a throwaway sentence, I believe, in this text when he says they were amazed he was speaking to a woman. Verse 30. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, they're coming to him. Then you get the interruption. Meanwhile, Jesus is talking to his disciples. So I'm going to skip that and go to the, the actual coming, all right? You get the little, little intervening glimpse there in verses between uh, verse 30 and 39. Let's go to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because the woman's testimony, 
He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, the most important thing that I think John wants us to see here is the twofold mentioning of her word, Jesus' word, her word, Jesus' word, and both as important. So look first, uh, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So that's her word. Then look at verse 41, the witness of Jesus. Many more believed because of his word. So her word leads to faith, and his word leads more people to faith and gives a new immediacy to the grounding of the first group as well. Then those two things, her word, his word, are mentioned again in verse 42. First, the woman's testimony. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, and then Jesus' testimony, for we heard for ourselves. And they mean they heard Jesus. And now they believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world because testimony has been given first from her, which brought many to faith, and then from him, which brought others to faith as well. Now, if you step back from this and say, so what happened in Samaria? This is just amazing. This is absolutely, this is Samaria. These are half-breeds. Jews avoid Samaria. This is a woman, five husbands. This is a strange strategy. It's a strange evangelistic strategy. Pick a people that everybody hates. Pick a woman that people think you shouldn't talk to. Pick a morally compromised woman and get a revival. Wow, man. So I think this story, at least that much of it, is in the Bible to encourage us in our very pluralistic, religiously, ethnically diverse, increasingly so, land and world that, that God has a people in Samaria. Pick your people group. God has a people. And guess what? He has a very unlikely instrument that he intends to use to reach them. Like you. With your horrific background. Okay? At least that much is intended to encourage us both that there's a people out there among any people group of the hundreds in the Twin Cities and none of you is disqualified from witnessing to them like she did. Now, this text is structured to go back and to uh, see the, the sandwich What's going on here in the intervening verses? Okay, verse 31. 
They say, Rabbi, eat. Because what's going on here in these words of Jesus is going to shed a lot of light on, how did that happen? That revival, that awakening. The whole town seems to have come to Christ. Rabbi, eat. He says that he has food that they don't know anything about. Verse 32. They're puzzled. They ask, who brought him food? They don't get it. They're dense, just like Nicodemus. She was, and we are so often. Verse 34, here's the almost incomprehensible words. I mean, if you think Jesus was always lucid and didn't use any opaque sentences, (laughs) puzzling, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. This is really striking. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, food is what you need in order to do your work. Food is what gives you strength for your work. So Jesus is saying, I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. That's what he's saying. Or, my source of energy for doing God's will is doing God's will. Now, who can talk like that? Who talks like that? I'll tell you who. God talks like that. And only God talks like that. I need food. Or I can't do anything. I die. But Jesus is saying, I'm self-replenishing. The strength that I need to do the will of God is doing the will of God. I don't get strength from anything but me. And so the glory begins to shine again. He needed no food. Now, in his humanity, of course, it says he got tired and sat down on the well. He got thirsty. In his humanity, he needs food, he needs water, he needs rest. He's a man, fully human. But in his divine nature, which is showing up here, he doesn't talk like anybody else. Nobody ever talked like this man. He is no mere mortal. In the beginning was the word. It's the first sentence of this gospel. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. What is He talking about? This and dozens of other places for those who are awake and not worldly. I'll just close my Bible quick and get back to the computer. They're not going to see anything. They won't be blown away. Except by the titillations of the computer. I'm very concerned about worldliness in my heart. 
And how it kills my Bible, shuts my eyes, deadens my heart. And I'm concerned about you. You hear it. So, here we are. He's revealing his glory, saying, I am sustained to finish God's work by finishing God's work. I am who I am. But something more specific is implied in that statement. My food, my source of strength, is to do the will of God and can finish his work. There's something more specific there. And when we see it, by just looking at the wider context, the connection with verses 35 and 36 is going to make sense. What is his food? Or what is God's will for him to do? And the answer is, God's will in this particular kind of wording and context is to give eternal life. Let me read you two texts to show you where I'm getting that idea. This is John 12, 49. Father, Jesus says, Father, the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. So if you say, okay, my food is to do the will of God. God's commandment to me is eternal life. Therefore, my food is to give eternal life. Here's my second text. John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of what he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. This is the will of the one who sent me. Lose nothing of what he's given me, but raise it up. So what's his will? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. His will is that I raise up his people at the last day. I give them everlasting life. So, when Jesus says in John 4, 34, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work, he means my food is to give eternal life. That is, my source of strength to give eternal life, my source of strength to give eternal life is to give eternal life. That's the way God talks. I give life because I am life. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I give life because I am life. My food is to be what I am. I'm a life giver. I eat giving life. I am sustained by sustaining others. Living water, bread from heaven... I don't eat food. I am food. I don't get life. I give life. This is God talking. Now the link with verses 35 and 36. Watch this. At first you just wonder, where is he going? Why, why, does, why does he make this switch? Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? What? Do you not say 
there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for what? Tell me. Eternal life. There's the link. He is reaping so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is reaping eternal life. That's what he's been doing with this woman. That's what this whole thing is about. I'm coming here to sow and to reap, to sow and to reap. I'm going to get eternal life here. I'm going to save this woman and her town. And notice something. Now this felt very complex to me. I commend it to you. See if you can understand it. See if you test it and believe it. Jesus is so free and he is so sovereign in his sowing, reaping work that he is totally independent of the ordinary four months that usually elapses between sowing and reaping. In the natural sphere, you sow, you wait four months, and then you get a harvest. And he says, forget that. Well, you can't forget that. So where it works. You sow, you wait four months, you get a harvest. You can't forget that. And he says, yes, you can, if you're God. Jesus is here, I'm going to show you this, collapsing reaping and sowing into one thing. He is blasting out of the water the sense that we're bound to have natural ways of doing things. Like, okay, church has to be natural. Evangelism has to be natural. Getting things done has to follow natural processes and traditions and ways. When God says, how about if I plant and in five minutes harvest? How about that? Now, if you wonder, hmm, really? Is that here? Where are you getting that? <laughs> it was a clue. In the Old Testament, in the prophet Amos, there's a picture of the last time, the future, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, the, the, the great day that's coming that we're all longing for when all's well and things change in the world and the kingdom is established and forever and ever we're with Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. And here's a little picture of that. Listen to Amos um, 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman, that's the sower, shall overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, so he's obviously just harvested these grapes, him who sows seed. <laughs> what? But, let me read it again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. It's collapsing. And the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, is collapsing. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. 
So here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is hinting, saying, I am the Messiah and I'm bringing the Messianic kingdom and it's beginning right now. And so don't talk to me about this four month lag stuff. If I sow, I can reap immediately. And I am. There'll be no four month here in Sychar. I'm a reaper. I'm a sower. They're happening together. Because I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I shake things up. I don't limit myself to natural processes of how evangelism works. I can take years, not four months. I can take seconds. He is orchestrating, I think, this entire event, working as sower and reaper and speaking the word and reaping its fruits. He concludes, verse 37 and 38, drawing the disciples in now. He's going to draw them in. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. Okay, looks like you were doing both, but... It's still true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you, these disciples, to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored. You have entered in to their labor. The disciples are going to share in the reaping, he says, but others have labored before them. Who are they? And uh, the commentaries are all over the map on this. Take your choice. Prophets, Jacob, John the Baptist in the vicinity. I'll tell you what I think. I think it's Jesus and the woman. That's why I drew your attention to the way it closed in verses 39 to 42. Her witness, his witness. Her witness, his witness. That's the work that's going on. These guys are out getting sandwiches. And now they're standing there and the whole town is coming to them. What happened? They didn't do anything. Jesus did something. She did something And they're going to enter in to that labor. So let me close with three applications. Number one, Jesus is the glorious Son of God, Savior of the world in this text, whose food is to accomplish God's purpose, namely to be food that gives eternal life. He doesn't need life-giving food. He is life-giving food. He sows the word. He reaps eternal life. And I say, and I think he would want me to say, meaning it from his heart and mine, may God open the eyes of your heart to see this glorious Savior of the world so that you are more eager to know him than to get back to your computer or your little phone. That's what I'm praying. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. 
Second, his coming is the beginning of the messianic age. I know this is, this is hard. The old age with all of its sin and fallenness and natural ways and the new age with all of its glorious plowman overtaking the reaper have overlapped in Jesus Christ. When he came, this new age began. The old one didn't stop. We still groan, waiting the redemption of our bodies, but it overlaps and this new one has come. And, and the application is this. Don't sell him short. What he may be willing to do in your life, on your campuses, in your family. You think, well, I got to sow and wait forever. Maybe not. Maybe not. He's God. Don't say yet four months. Maybe not. Pray hard. Hope hard. Believe much. Pray much. He collapses natural intervals. Pray for wonders in our church. Pray for sowing and reaping around the world that stuns the world. May the martyrdom of three pastors in Nigeria be the blood of the church, the seed of the church, and millions of Muslims turn to Christ. There's nothing about anybody's eschatology, at least not mine, that says that kind of wonderful missionary fruitfulness can't happen before Jesus comes back. Number three and lastly, all our labor is important. Hers was. Jesus did not replace this woman. He empowered this woman. He freed this woman. Saved this woman. He uses, in the best sense of the word, this woman in a way that she delights in. God uses men and women, sinful women, forgiven women, to sow and to reap. And we are always entering into the labor of another. You don't ever get a big head, right? We were praying downstairs. Bethlehem feels like a big church to many. It's not a big church. There are millions and millions and millions of believers in the world. God has a magnificent army and a glorious kingdom. You can't even see Bethlehem from there. We just love being a part of it because we're entering into so much labor. So much labor. Unless you're a rarefied, unusual missionary, you never began with anybody. Maybe your own baby your parent. But there's always somebody whose labor you're entering into. And I close by, by simply pointing out the one whose labor you are mainly entering into is Jesus. Because all through this gospel, when he talks about my food is to do the will of him who sent me and complete what he's given me to do, we know where that's going. It's going to, it is finished. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished what you gave me to do. That's the labor we're mainly entering into. He's, he's worked. He's savingly worked for people. And now he's going to save them. We have a great Savior. And he's up to something in our day. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we love Christ. And we believe that the ministry of the word anointed with the spirit awakens dead hearts. So I pray for hearts at the downtown campus Sunday morning, South Campus Sunday morning, North Campus Saturday night, and right here, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be mightily at work to open the eyes of the blind, that the glory of Christ would be seen and he would be savored and followed. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.